Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 6. Almost 500 years ago, there was a man named Hugh Latimer. He was a bishop in the Church of England, and on one particular Sunday, he was called upon to preach before the king, King Henry VIII. And so Hugh Latimer preached his sermon, at the end of which uh, Henry VIII wasn't exactly thrilled, and the king uh, commanded Latimer to return the next Sunday to recant, to take back some of his pointed remarks, which offended uh, the king, and to think uh, more wisely about uh, what he had to say to him. And so a week passed, and Hugh Latimer came with knees trembling uh, before Henry VIII. And as he stood before the king and his court, he began with the following words directed to himself. Hugh Latimer, do you know to whom you speak? It is to the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend. Therefore, take heed lest you speak a word which might displease him. And then Latimer paused for effect. And then he continued speaking to himself. Hugh Latimer, do you know from whom you come? It is from Almighty God who can cast body and soul into hell forever. Therefore, be sure you deliver your message faithfully. And he paused for effect. And then he preached the exact sermon he had preached the Sunday before, only with far greater enthusiasm. Miraculously, by God's good providence, Hugh Latimer made it with his head intact through the reign of Henry VIII, uh, prospered, theologically speaking, in terms of the church during the reign of Edward VI, and then was burned at the stake during the reign of Bloody Mary. He was a courageous witness. That is the title for this day's sermon, and it arises out of our text in the book of Mark, chapter 6. As we noted last Lord's Day in the first six verses, we read of Christ's homecoming. He returns, having ministered throughout Galilee, healing people, casting out demons, proclaiming the gospel. He returns to his hometown. How does his hometown receive him? In the first place, they are astonished. Where did this man get these things? From where did he get such power? From where did he get such wisdom? In the second place, they are scandalized. They take offense at him. Why? Because they remember him as a man. And they cannot reconcile who they know him to be as a man with his claims to be the Messiah and the proof as seen in his power and his wisdom. And the response is seen thirdly in what? They harden their hearts and they refuse to believe. They reject, in a word to sum up, they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Their rejection sets the context for what follows in verse 7. Christ uses that moment, his rejection, as as a teaching lesson for his disciples, whom he now sends out to preach. And he is teaching them, he is showing them, he is preparing them for what is in store. They can expect precisely the same reception. 
So follow along as I begin reading the seventh verse. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is the prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorrowful. Sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to wring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. What, here's a good question, is happening in these verses? What happens in these verses? I'm going to answer that question with eight points, and I'm going to move at some speed. And if you have a problem keeping up, uh, turn to the sermon notes. If you aren't familiar with the sermon notes, you'll find them somewhere there in the bulletin. And you'll see eight headings. And those are, that's an eightfold answer to the question, what happens in these verses? And I just want to mention each of these briefly, make one or two remarks, and then get to the main point of the text. And so what happens in these verses? The first thing that happens is this. Christ calls the twelve, stated clearly, right there in verse 7. Now notice, this is the third time Christ has called the twelve. The first time we read of in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Christ calls his disciples. He calls Peter and James and John and Andrew. He calls Matthew to do what? 
to follow him. You, 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 you and you. Twelve men, come follow me. That's the first call. We read of the second call in chapter 3. He calls them not merely to follow him, but to be with him. Why? That they might learn from him. Why? Because he intends to send them out to do what? To preach. Now we have the third call, where he actually calls them to do what? It is time to go out and preach. You have been following me. You have been learning from me. The time is now ripe for you to go out to extend my ministry, to extend the proclamation of the gospel. It's made clear in Matthew chapter 10, they are to go exclusively to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There will be a fourth call. It is recorded in Mark chapter 16. It is recorded, we know it better, in Matthew chapter 28. We call it what? The Great Commission. When the Lord Jesus will again call them to go out to preach, not exclusively to the house of Israel, but to whom? To make disciples of all the nations. Four calls. What is important to note in this context is that the second call and the third call That is, the second call, his his call to them to be with him, to learn from him, that he might send them out to preach. And now this call right here in Mark 6, the third call where he actually sends them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, they are set in the context of what? Israel's rejection. And so Mark is doing what? He is making a contrast. He is showing on the one hand that Israel has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. He is showing, therefore, that Israel, and in particular, Israel's leadership is apostate. Standing in marked contrast to whom? The disciples. How many disciples are there? Twelve. It is no accident. How many tribes of Israel are there? Twelve. What is the Lord Jesus declaring in the calling and sending forth of his twelve disciples in marked contrast against the backdrop of Israel's rejection, that these men constitute what? The new Israel. This is made clear in the Gospels. It is made perfectly clear in the book of Acts. It is made abundantly clear in the epistles. We have it crystallized in Ephesians chapter 2, toward the end of that chapter, where Paul tells us what? That these men, the apostles, constitute what? The foundation of the church. He calls the twelve. Second thing that happens is this. He sends them out, still in verse 7. Two by two. Why? Two reasons, simply. First is this. Two by two, it confirms the message. We are not to receive evidence unless it is presented by two or three witnesses. So he sends them out two by two to confirm the message. Secondly, he sends them out two by two in order to encourage the messenger. He is sending them out as sheep among wolves. They have already seen in his ministry what they can expect as they go out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim the gospel. They know the rejection that is coming. He does not send them out alone. He sends them out two by two for the purpose of mutual support and encouragement. Third thing that happens, still in verse 7, Christ gives them authority over unclean spirits. Not merely unclean spirits. You go down to the 13th verse, what do we read? They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so remember that the Lord Jesus, by his own authority, he, he, he casts out demons, 
He heals diseases. He demonstrates his divine authority in these two realms, the realm of the demons, the realm of diseases. He now extends this authority to his disciples. Why? In order to authenticate their message. We read in Hebrews chapter 2 the following, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard, the disciples, the apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so he gives them power over disease, authority over demons. Why? As an extension of his authority. Why? As a divine confirmation of their preaching. The fourth thing that happens brings us into verses 8 and 9. Christ charges them what to take. He states it explicitly in the eighth verse. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. So they're to make no provision, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now this is a temporary command. Because later when the Lord Jesus sends out these same men, he actually tells them to take many of these things. But for now, as they go out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he doesn't want them to make any provision. He wants them to go exactly as they find themselves. All they can take is the tunic on their back. All they can take is the staff in their hand. Why? He is teaching them. What is he teaching them? That they are going to have to depend upon him that they are going to have to trust in him, that as they go out to minister in his name, they must go fully confident that he will provide for and meet their needs. The sixth thing, or the fifth thing, rather, that happens in these verses is this. Verse 10, Christ charges them where to stay. The 10th verse, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart. From there, In other words, you come to a town, you come to a village, you begin to preach, and there is someone there, a homeowner, who receives the word gladly, embraces your preaching, believes in the gospel. Gladly he receives you into, into his home to care for you and provide for you. That is to where you, where you are to go, and that is where you are to remain until it is time to leave that village, leave that town. Why? Seems a little odd, doesn't it? I think the Lord Jesus is protecting them against a potential danger. He is protecting them against a potential pitfall. It is simply this, the temptation to turn their ability and their authority into an industry. As they travel around and as they exercise this authority over demons and over diseases, the temptation to profit from it. The Lord Jesus warns them in Matthew chapter 10. He makes it clear. You receive without paying. You give without pay. And so you enter that town. Someone receives the word. He invites you into his home gladly. That is where you are to stay. You are not to profit from this ministry. You are not to turn contrary to what we see on the television day after day after day by supposed ministers of Christ. You are not to turn the gospel into an industry. You are not to profit from it. And then he gives a seventh 
Seven, the seventh thing that happens, sixth thing that happens brings us to verse 11. God charges them what? How to handle rejection. The 11th verse. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So imagine the scene. They enter this wayward town, this out-of-the-way secluded village, and they enter and they proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. No one listens. No one receives them. There's utter, absolute rejection. As they leave, what are they to do? They are to shake the dust from them. Why? The Jews will know what that means. Why? Because it is their own custom. That whenever a Jew travels through Samaritan territory, or whenever a Jew travels through Gentile territory, perhaps on the way somewhere else, or perhaps on business, as soon as they leave that territory, what do they do? They shake the dust from their garments. They wipe the dust from their feet. Why? What are they declaring? They are declaring separation. More than that, they are declaring absolute disdain for the people from among whom they have just come. And so the Lord Jesus tells them, when they reject you, here's what you're to do, and they will understand exactly what it means. You are to wipe the dust and shake the dust from your very feet. It is a declaration of what? God's rejection. It is a declaration of what? Impending judgment, as the Lord Jesus warns in Matthew 10, the parallel text, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That town that rejects you, that town that by consequence rejects me, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the coming day of judgment than for the people of that town. You shake the dust from off your feet. The seventh thing he commands them to do, verses 12 and 13, he evidently commands them what to preach. So look at verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That is what John the Baptist preached. That is what the Lord Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the disciples take what they have heard. Christ has called them to follow him. Christ has called them to be with him, to learn from them, so that he might equip them to send them out. They have heard his message, and now they go forth faithfully to proclaim it. And their message is simple. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance, it involves the mind, doesn't it? It is acknowledging that we have sinned against a holy God. Repentance, it involves the heart, the emotions. It is feeling that we have sinned and offended a holy God. And it involves the will, our actions, our choices, whereby we turn from our sin. We turn from our love of self to serve the one true living God. This is the message they are to proclaim. And the disciples go forth and proclaim it faithfully that people everywhere should repent. And the eighth thing that happens. Now to find it, we need to skip all the way down to verses 30 and 31. Christ takes them aside to rest a while. Look at those verses, what Mark records there. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He knows what they've been through. He knows what they have experienced. He knows how trying it has been. He knows how exhausting it has been. And this is wonderful, Christian, and never lose sight of this. He knows their limits. He knows what they are able to bear. 
And it is time to draw them away from the crowds and the confusion and the rejection and everything else that is going on. A time away with Christ. A time of refreshing. That is what is happening in these verses. Now, you've probably noticed. I don't know how you couldn't notice it. We skipped over 15 verses. In the middle of all this, in the middle of Christ calling his disciples to go forth and to to preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, receiving them again and taking them away for a little R&R, in the midst of all that, what do we read about? seems kind of odd. The death of John the Baptist. What's that got to do with anything? It's a stylistic device. We have seen it before. We saw it in the fifth chapter. Do you remember what happens in the fifth chapter? There's that incident involving Jairus. Jairus, a leader of the Jewish synagogue, comes to the Lord Jesus pleading with him, my little girl is lying at home, dying. Come, touch her that you might heal her. And the Lord Jesus, he journeys with Jairus toward his home. And then all of a sudden there's an unexpected interruption. There's a woman secretly moving on the outskirts of this crowd who enters through undetected, touches the hem of Christ's garments, and is healed. Christ stops. Who touched my garments? And he has this interaction with this woman and tells her and assures her that her faith has made her well. Go in peace. And then all of a sudden, Jairus re-enters the narrative. And men come from his house to inform him that his daughter is dead. And off goes the Lord Jesus to raise his daughter from the dead. And so we have this story of this woman with the hemorrhage sandwiched in the middle of this other incident involving Jairus. Why? Because what the Lord Jesus is teaching Jairus is demonstrated and is, it, there's an example of it in the incident involving the woman with the hemorrhage. And so the incident that is sandwiched in Christ's dealings with Jairus is pivotal to what the Lord Jesus is seeking to teach Jairus. It is a stylistic device. And now what we have here in Mark chapter 6 is something similar. You have the Lord Jesus calling his disciples. You have him sending out his disciples, telling them how to go, where to go, how to preach, how to handle rejection. And now you have him receiving them back to himself. And then all of a sudden, sandwiched in the middle of it, you have the death of John the Baptist, or at least this account of the death of John the Baptist. Why? Because in John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus is teaching the disciples something. And by consequence, the Lord Jesus is teaching us something. In what is found in this narrative concerning John the Baptist, sandwiched inside this other narrative, is an example of a courageous witness. We have an example, we are furnished with an example of what the disciples needed and of what we need as we are sent out as sheep among wolves. Christ's point is this. Mark's point is this. Learn from the example of John the Baptist. Now you think of that incident there as it's recorded in Mark 6. Let me set the historical context briefly. We can't understand exactly what's going on there without backing up a little bit to a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great, or not so great, is the king over Israel at the time of Christ's birth. Do you remember that, Herod? 
He's the one who finds out from the wise men where Christ has been born, and he orders that all of the children under the age of two be killed in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. It's that Herod the Great. Herod the Great had ten wives, countless children, as you can imagine. Before he died, not only did he, did he kill those, those, those infants, he, he tried to kill anyone who he viewed as a threat to his throne. He had one of his own sons murdered. He had the entire Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel, murdered. He murdered anybody who he viewed as a threat. And when he died in 4 BC, in his will, he left a request for the Roman emperor because Herod the Great was not an independent monarch. He was appointed by the emperor in Rome and ruled as his vassal. But in his will, he requested that his little kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, be divided in four sections and that each section be given to one of his sons. And so we read, no need to turn there. Let me just read these couple of verses for us in Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judah, that's territory number one, Herod, this is Herod Antipas, being tetrarch, tetrarch means a ruler of a fourth, of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. There you have four rulers ruling over a quarter of what was formerly the kingdom of Herod the Great. And so Herod, he, he, he makes this request. The Roman emperor, he grants it. And so one of those regions, the region of Galilee, falls to the rule and the control of one of Herod the Great's sons named Herod Antipas. It is this Herod that we have here in the text. Now, Herod Antipas is a married man. But on one occasion, he travels to the city of Rome. And there he meets up with one of his brothers, a half-brother. So another son of Herod the Great, but a different mother. His name is Philip. Not the Philip, this gets confusing, folks. Not the Philip we just, mentioned, we just read of in Luke chapter 3. A different Philip. Philip is married to a woman named Herodias. Who is Herodias? Herodias is the daughter of another son of Herod the Great. Did you, it's a nice family, folks. Real nice family. She is, so she is the granddaughter of Herod the Great, the, son of another, the daughter of another son, half-brother to Philip and Herod. So she has married her uncle, Philip, and is living in Rome. Herod Antipas arrives at Rome with his wife, takes a fancy to Herodias. He divorces his wife. Herodias divorces Philip, and the two of them get married. And so Herodias is now married to another uncle, a man who is the brother, half-brother of her former husband, who was also what? An uncle. And John the Baptist calls it like it is. He does not back down. He does not shy away. He cries, it is not lawful for you to have her. It is not lawful on at least two accounts. Firstly, it is an adulterous relationship. Herod Antipas, you were a married man and you divorced your wife out of convenience. Herodias, she was a married woman. She divorced her husband out of convenience. The two of you have now married. It is an adulterous relationship. Not only that, it is an incestuous relationship. 
She was married to her uncle. She has now married another uncle, the brother of her former husband. It is an incestuous relationship. He calls it like it is. It is not lawful for you to be married to her. Herod seems all right with it. I mean, he had yeah, no problem. Herodias wants to silence John. And the opportunity comes at a banquet, festival, birthday party for Herod Antipas. When Herodias' daughter, now this isn't Herod Antipas' daughter. This is a daughter from her former marriage. So this girl, tradition tells us her name was Salome. We don't know, know for sure. This girl is her niece, is Herod Antipas' niece, and is also the daughter of Herod Antipas' niece. Figure that one out. And she dances before Herod Antipas and all of his invites and all of his military men and all of the chief rulers from Galilee. It is of a sexual connotation. Herod Antipas is thrilled. His guests are thrilled. And he promises the young girl anything she wants. And off she goes to her mother, Herodias. And Herodias seizes the opportunity and she says, you go back to him. Here's what I want you to tell him. Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Back she goes. And Herod doesn't want to do it. Nothing, nothing meritorious there. He doesn't want to do it simply because he kind of gets a kick out of John the Baptist. But for the sake of his guests and to maintain his pride and not wanting to lose face before these guests before whom in the presence of whom he has made such a rash vow, he sends his guard and the guard returns with a head of John the Baptist on a platter. What is the Lord Jesus teaching the disciples? What are the disciples? What are we to learn from this entire incident? Do you know what it is, friends? It is this. John the Baptist could have avoided the entire ordeal. All he had to do was keep silent. If the man had said nothing, his head would have remained intact. But in John the Baptist, we have an example of what? A courageous witness. And Mark is teaching us, teaching the disciples as they go out and as they come back. And as eventually that fourth call will be issued, whereby they will be sent out to make disciples of all the nations. And they will experience harrowing persecution, all but one of them martyred. He is furnishing them with this tremendous example of what it means to heed Christ's call and to go forth uncompromisingly as a courageous witness. Notice four things in particular. Firstly, a courageous witness proclaims God's law. There are moral absolutes. God is holy. And yes, God does view certain things as disgusting. And John declares it plainly, openly. It is not lawful for you to have her. God has declared the opposite. You have transgressed. A courageous witness proclaims God's law. Secondly, a courageous witness rebukes man's sin. He doesn't speak in general terms. He doesn't simply put out some sort of general statement concerning marriage. No, he goes straight at Herod. 
He names him by name, Herod and Tippus. It is an adulterous relationship. It is an incestuous relationship. He rebukes the man's sin. A courageous witness, thirdly, calls people to repentance. His point in rebuking Herod and Tippus wasn't simply to prove to him that he was wrong. It was to bring about the man's repentance whereby he would turn to God. Fourthly, A courageous witness is prepared to suffer. Let me repeat it, lest we miss it. Main point, John could have avoided this entire ordeal if he had just kept silent. He was a courageous witness. We have have numerous examples of such witnesses throughout Scripture. Uh, One of my favorites is uh, Nathan the prophet. And so David, King David, has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has orchestrated and is responsible for the death of her husband, Uriah. And uh, Nathan is just minding his own business. And then God tells him, look, I want you to go to David and rebuke him for his sin. If I were Nathan, what's going through my mind at that moment? Could I send him an anonymous email? That's what's going through my mind. Would, would that serve the purpose, Lord? I know it will not, Nathan. And Nathan goes with his knees trembling and stands before King David. Remember the little parable he tells him of the two men. One with his little family, this little lamb, the only sheep he had, which was like a, the family pet. And another man, rich, heard tons of sheep. And this other man was entertaining a guest, and he went and took this other man's only sheep and, and slaughtered it in order to feed his guest. Uh, David loses it. I mean, David snaps. He is scandalized by the injustice. Surely that man will be put to death. And then to his horror, Nathan points his old crooked little finger at David with these words. You are the man. You are the man. Oh, Nathan. David is a wounded bear at this point, folks. Remember? You're almost expecting in the narrative for David to respond how? Oh, yeah, Nathan, you are a dead man. He's broken. The Spirit of God uses the prophet's rebuke to bring Satan's, uh, to bring David's sin to view, bringing about conviction, bringing about repentance, of which we read in Psalm 32, Psalm 51, where he pours out his heart, confessing his sin before God. Oh, but the courage of Nathan, the courage of John the Baptist, a courageous witness. Now, friends, you've probably already guessed it. I mean, th- this applies. This applies on so many levels, and I know so many of us struggle with this. We, we understand, okay, I see what I am called to. I see that I am called to proclaim the gospel faithfully, repent and believe in the gospel. I know that calling people to repentance means what? That we actually point out sin. We call things like they are. And I know that means we must be a courageous witness, but, you know, how... How does does that work in the context of a family? How do I pull that off with grandma? 85 years old, played the piano in the church for 50 years and is sure her place in heaven is just sealed. I don't want to strain that relationship. How How do I pull that off with my colleague at work or my neighbor over the fence the next yard without without creating strain and antagonism? How do I pull that off in a society in which I see so many things, a culture, so many things which offend God are so contrary to the word of God. Chick-fil-A day. Oh, to eat a chicken sandwich or not to eat a chicken sandwich? That is the question. 
Do I participate in that? Do I not participate in that? I'm called to be a courageous witness, but I struggle with the balance. I struggle with this. I know my own sinfulness, and I know my own motives, and I know how destructive, if we don't get it right, it can be at times. And I'm not sure where the line is. I'm not sure how to judge things. I'm not sure how to reason my way through this. And how do I guard against this temptation? How do I guard against a, a courageous witness, a courageous testimony, actually simply coming across as hate? Hate. Because that's what they accuse us of, isn't it? That's what we get accused of. That's what we get accused of with cousin so-and-so, grandpa so-and-so, niece so-and-so, when we bring up sins, issues of the heart, when we take a stand, when we declare things, affirm things in absolute terms, that is what gets lobbed back, isn't it? It's a spirit of hate. How do we safeguard against that? How do we make sure that our conscience is clear before God? Let me suggest a firm four things that arise from this text. First is this. A courageous witness for the gospel becomes hate when our motivation is wrong. When our motivation is wrong. What is John the Baptist's motivation? It is simply this, folks. He burns with zeal for the glory of God. Here is a man who is consumed with the holiness of God. Here is a man who understands his sin and everyone else's sin is an affront to God and an attack upon God. Here is a man who understands that sin clouds and obscures and hides and perverts the glory of God, the glory of God, which is the only source of man's happiness. This is a man consumed with God. This is a man consumed with the glory of God. And therefore, this is a man who burns with zeal for that glory. Secondly, a courageous witness for the truth, for the gospel, becomes hate when our objective is wrong. What is John the Baptist's objective? He's not simply trying to win an argument with Herod and Tippus. He's not putting Herod and Tippus in his place. He isn't trying to preserve or safeguard some sort of societal institution. He most certainly is not pandering to his political constituency. John the Baptist is after the man's repentance. John the Baptist is driven with compassion. John the Baptist is a man acutely aware of this fact that God's wrath gathers like waters behind a dam. And the day is coming when the dam will break. That there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. And so John isn't trying to win anything. John isn't driven by pride. John isn't trying to put Herod in his place. John is trying to uphold God's law because he's burning with zeal for the glory of God and he is equally so burning with compassion for Herod's well-being. He's driven by love. That he declare God's will and that he encourage and plead and beg with Herod to repent. To turn from his sin to a loving, accepting God. Third is this. Courageous witness to the truth. Well, it becomes hate when we're inconsistent. John the Baptist, folks, is not inconsistent. 
in this text, he goes after an individual who, yes, is morally depraved. That's pretty clear from the text. Earlier, he goes after individuals who are moral hypocrites with equal vehemency and enthusiasm. Herod the Antipas' sin is no more serious. His moral depravity and his transgression and his sin, as far as John the Baptist is concerned, is no more serious than the Pharisee's self-righteousness and legalism. He does not weigh one above the other. He does not grade these things on a scale. All sin displeasing in God's sight. And he calls the Pharisees, the the religionists of his day, to repentance, to turn from their self-reliance, to turn from their self-righteousness, to turn from their works-oriented concept of the gospel whereby they think they're better than everyone else but are actually on the outside looking in. And he calls to Herod, Herod, scraping the bottle, yes, the bottom of the barrel, metaphorically speaking. And his call is the same. His sense of urgency is the same. He does not view one in being in a more perilous position than the other. He does not consider one to be more scandalous than the other. He preaches and he proclaims. He is a faithful, courageous witness to the truth. And he is consistent as he does so. Fourth is this. A courageous witness to the truth becomes hate when we are hypocritical. When we are hypocritical. John is no hypocrite. Look at the 20th verse. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. Righteousness and holiness. Righteousness, that's the second table of the law, our dealings with man. Holiness, that's the first table of the law, our dealings with God. This is the testimony. This is the report. This is the rapport that John the Baptist has with Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas fears him. Why? Because there's no question. No question of what? Moral hypocrisy. He knows who John the Baptist is. He knows what John the Baptist is. He knows he is a holy and righteous man. And if we are seeking to be courageous witness to the truth, our motivation must be right. Burning zeal for the glory of God. Our objective must be right. A compassionate plea for the well-being of our fellow human beings. We must be consistent in denouncing all sin beginning with our own. And we must strive to avoid the charge of hypocrisy. So let me repeat, let me return. I do not want to make an issue out of this. And to be honest, I'm not even clear in all the ins and outs of the issue. Chick-fil-A day. To eat a chicken sandwich, not to eat a chicken sandwich. I I remember just over three years ago, Chase collecting me at the airport, flying in, and uh, said, Chase, I'll take you anywhere for lunch. Chick-fil-A is where he wanted to go. My first exposure to chocolate milkshakes, and I must say I'm glad there's no Chick-fil-A in Glen Rose. Love their chocolate milkshakes. But to eat a chicken sandwich or not to eat a chicken sandwich, to celebrate Chick-fil-A Day, you know what the answer is to that, folks? It depends. It depends on these four. What is my motivation? What is my objective? Am I being consistent? And could I, God forbid be charged with hypocrisy. Those are in place. When those are in place, before God, in sincerity of heart, we're in a good place to be speaking out publicly 
concerning sin. We're in a good place to be speaking out privately against sin in our families, in our workplaces, with our colleagues. When these are in place, we honor God, we respect the individual, and we prove ourselves to be faithful, not merely faithful. We prove ourselves to be courageous, being prepared to suffer whatever it might cost us as we seek to be faithful to the God who has commissioned us. Now let me leave you with one concluding point. It's not in this text here in Mark 6, but it's in the parallel account in, uh, in Matthew chapter 14 of John's death. And there we read, as Matthew records it, John's execution, his beheading. John concludes it all with these words, when Jesus heard this. And so John's disciples, they, they bury the, the body of John the Baptist, and then they go straight to Jesus to tell him. And this is what Matthew adds. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now that doesn't bring tears to your eyes. I don't know what will. Why? When he hears of it, John is gone. That fox, Herod Antipas, is responsible for his death. His disciples are now here with tears in their eyes, having buried what remains of his body. Jesus, off he goes in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Why? Is he saddened by the death of a friend? Possibly. Is he angered by the mistreatment of a holy man? Possibly. Is he dismayed by the rejection of the last in a long line of prophets? Possibly. Is he troubled? by the prospect of his own impending death. Absolutely. John's death is a foreshadowing of Christ's death. He knows what is coming. He knows that as John has now died, as a result of the fact of being a faithful witness to the truth, so too the Lord Jesus will die for being a faithful witness to the truth of far greater significance. That death that is foreshadowed in the death of John the Baptist, Christ's own death, will accomplish something far greater. As he himself makes clear, pivotally so, in Mark's book, it is this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And the message he sent his disciples out to preach, the message that he himself preached, and the message that we preach today in light of that death and burial and resurrection, in light of that great price of redemption that has been paid, in light of that ransom that has been paid, our message is this, friend. Repent and believe in the gospel. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we have heard your word. Now let our cry come before you. Teach us according to your word. Now let our plea come before you. Save us according to your word. Incline our hearts to your commands and promises, and our lips will pour forth praise. In the name of your beloved Son, we ask it. Amen.